0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering. Hello and thanks for joining me for the next half hour. We are discussing Lama Tungkapa's three principal aspects of the path, and in particular the verse However, if your determination to be free is not sustained by the pure altruistic intention, that's bodhicitta, it does not become the cause for the perfect bliss of unsurpassed enlightenment. Therefore, the intelligent generate the supreme thought of enlightenment. This is the verse that introduces bodhicitta, or what Lama Tungkapa calls the supreme thought of enlightenment and we've been considering one of the two ways of generating this thought. If you've been with us in the previous weeks, you may remember that this way is called the Six Cause and One Effect method and consists of recognizing all beings as our mothers, remembering their kindness, wishing to repay the kindness, generating great love, then generating great compassion, and making the great resolve. Those six causes lead to the one effect, bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment to benefit all sentient beings. Last week we got up to the great resolve, that is the determination that I myself alone will liberate all beings from suffering and lead them to the happiness they want. Right from the start we have to recognize, of course, we are all equal in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering. No matter what someone does, even if to us it may obviously be totally destructive Underlying the action somewhere is a wish to attain some happiness or to avoid some suffering. As Venerable Tenzin Gapel, the Cornell University Buddhist chaplain, says, The purpose of our life is to live happily and peacefully. We do not go to a store to purchase the idea that we want happiness and do not want suffering. The motivation that makes us willing to seek happiness and avoid suffering is innate. There are many simple things in our lives that indicate that the very purpose of our life is happiness. We are motivated to work for a living in order to ensure that we have happiness in our life. We may rest for two days after five days of a work week. We take vacations and sometimes move from one place to another in the hope that our lives will be better. Some people are careful with diet and exercise as ways to achieve happiness. Even the little movements we make in order to get more comfortable stem from our innate desire for happiness. The success of our life is measured by our ability to live happily and die joyfully, not by mere accumulation of wealth, fame and possessions. Now this applies to all of us, even the most badly behaved and the most deluded. For instance, we can wonder why Hitler wanted to exterminate all the Jews. Did he really understand that harming others brings great harm to oneself? No. He thought that the Jews were responsible both for Germany losing World War I and all the economic trouble his country was going through afterwards. By getting rid of the Jews he expected himself and others who thought like him to prosper and be happier. Later he may have thought that once he had won the war he would be able to live happily and peacefully as Venerable Tenzin Gapel puts it. Of course, what Hitler didn't recognize was that the Jews wanted happiness and didn't want suffering exactly as he did. He even thought that as a collection of beings, the Jews had a much lower status than his Aryan race, so much lower that he was able to deny that they were the same as himself in the search for happiness. Their happiness just didn't count, and nor did their suffering. Now look into your own mind and see if you have a similar attitude to a set of people with whom you do not identify. Can we say that we long for others' happiness in the same way we want our own happiness or even more so? For many of us, there are are others whose happiness we really don't care about. We just wish they would disappear from our lives. However, with this attitude, we've forgotten that all beings have at some stage been our mother's and looked after us with enormous affection and care. Just because someone appears to be our enemy today doesn't mean that in the past he or she wasn't unbelievably kind to us. And in the future, this person may well be our very kind parent again. If we can see all that, then our current relationship with them may take on a different hue, and we may not be so uncaring about their happiness. In fact, we may even think of repaying the kindness they showed us and so go on to develop love and compassion for them. Then, instead of working to harm them, we will try to bring them happiness. I think this is possible if we are serious about it. In any case, it is necessary if we are going to make the great resolve. We not only have to understand very clearly how we all want happiness and don't look for suffering, but also go a step further and take on the responsibility to bring that happiness and freedom from suffering to all, not only ourselves. Now this resolve leads to the one effect, the intention to attain enlightenment, to discharge our responsibility. Because who is the best to bring happiness and liberation to all? As the nun Thupten children taught us last week, last week it's not our mother or father, it's not our ordinary teachers, nor even the arhats or bodhisattvas, These are all limited beings, so their help will be limited. Only the enlightened beings are ultimately capable of leading beings to the state of peace with no more suffering, because they can see exactly what each person needs to make further progress on the spiritual path. Therefore, wanting the liberation of all beings, I must myself become enlightened, else my qualifications and skills will be lacking." Now before we go on, let's set our motivation for today's program as we usually do. As we are discussing bodhicitta, and as that is the most beneficial of all motivations, let's adopt that as our motivation for the day. However, if you have some objection, or just cannot do it at this time, at least motivate for your own liberation from all sufferings and dissatisfaction. Thank you. In her commentary, Tupton Chodron points out that to generate pothichita, we have to know about refuge and the qualities of the Buddha Dharma and Sangha, so that we can develop the same qualities ourselves. And while we need to have love and compassion for all beings impartially, we also have to recognize our own limitations and suffering, and our wish to be free. If we don't, how are we ever going to help others free themselves? We will also have to understand cause and effect as well as the sufferings brought on by the eight worldly concerns and how to abandon them. Tipton says that we have to understand the definition of bodhicitta very well. It's a primary mind with two aspirations. One is to benefit others in whatever way possible and the other to become a fully enlightened Buddha to do that. When we understand this, it becomes difficult to lie to ourselves or become arrogant in our practice, she claims, and then goes on. Sometimes we might meditate very well and have enormous love and compassion for others. Or after you do retreat, you come back and you feel like you love everybody and it's all wonderful. But then we have to ask ourselves, whenever I see a sentient being, do I have the spontaneous wish to lead them to enlightenment? Ask yourself that question. If upon seeing that spider in my house... Near my child, do I have the spontaneous wish to lead that spider to enlightenment? And then you will see if you've actually generated full bodhicitta or not. And ask yourself the question, when somebody talks behind my back, is my reaction one of total love and compassion and wanting that person to be free of suffering? Is that my attitude spontaneously, without having to sit and think about it? If somebody driving under the influence accidentally kills my dearest loved one, Do I have the spontaneous wish to lead that drunken guy to enlightenment? Then we see if we've generated full bodhicitta. Or ask ourselves, am I willing to give up my sleep to benefit sentient beings? Am I willing to give up my latte to benefit sentient beings? And then you get a clue, because intellectually I can give up my latte to benefit sentient beings, but not the one I'm having today, the one I'm having tomorrow, I'll give that one up. So it's just helpful in this way. I'm not saying this so we feel inadequate on the path, but so that we guard ourselves against being overly inflated. She says that it's possible that we feel a great deal of love and compassion in meditation, but unless we have full complete wisdom as well, and complete self-honesty and self-awareness, the ego can deceive us in many ways. We have to be mindful. She goes on, I say this warning, because I've seen difficulties arising in people's practice, and also because my teachers have also warned me, and their teachers warned them about arrogance and too much self-inflation on the path, thinking we've realized something when we haven't. Five paths are described in the Mahayana tradition, and when we attain the third one, the path of seeing, we're supposed to be able to see a thousand Buddhas at one time. His Holiness the Dalai Lama tells the story of somebody who came to see him who said, I dreamt of a thousand Buddhas. I must have attained the path of seeing. And His Holiness said, Well, it takes much more than dreaming of a thousand Buddhas, of seeing a thousand Buddhas in your dream to indicate the path of seeing. and Chodron points out that seeing a thousand Buddhas is like one kind of perk on the path of seeing, but it's not the defining characteristic. So His Holiness's visitor although having studied and knowing about the Bodhisattva path of seeing, didn't really understand well and thought he was further along than he was. Says Thubten children, it's always advisable to be humble. She then talks about what it must be like to have bodhicitta in everyday life. Now the following example might not appeal to everyone, especially new mothers, but she describes the mind in it as liberating. She says, just sit and imagine what it would be like to see a black widow spider close to your child and your compassion isn't just for your child but also for the black widow spider. You know, some sentient being who is born in that horrible rebirth with totally no awareness of what's going on and they're just trying to eat and they're just trying not to be squashed themselves. They do not know anything about karma. They're just trying to be happy and not suffer. And to be able to look at that black widow spider like that Imagine the state of mind your mind would be to have so much compassion, not only for your child, but also for the spider. That would be really lovely state of mind, wouldn't it? Don't you think so? I mean, of course, you still save your child from the spider. It doesn't do any good to the spider to let the spider bite your child. But you don't have to squash the spider. You can take it outside. You don't have to hate it or be afraid of it either. I find that very useful in my own practice. She goes on, Just think what it would be like to be totally free of anger and what it would be like to have a mind that isn't easily offended, that isn't attached to my reputation, so that I could walk into work and somebody could tell me about something I messed up on and I don't react with ego. What would that be like? Or what would it be like If somebody did the most horrible thing imaginable to me and I could still react to that person by seeing him or her with affection but still saying what they did was wrong. It does not mean that you say what they did is right. What they did is wrong but you don't get angry about it. Now what would that be like? Or what would it be like to have the thing that you want so much and crave right in front of you but your mind isn't all obsessed with it? Your mind is just tranquil because you already feel fulfilled. What would that be like? So I think imagining these kinds of things gives us a taste of what it is we are aspiring for. We bring Buddhahood down from being some kind of abstraction to something we can relate to in our life. So these are just a few of the attributes of a Buddha, but it gives us something to start building and understanding of Buddhahood. And it gives us a strong motivation to want to attain Buddhahood now, here's a little Zen story to make the point. It comes from the Stories of the Spirit, Stories of the Heart, a book edited by Jack Cornfield and Christina Feltman. Now, I don't know if the monk in the story was a Buddha or not, but he demonstrates the qualities of one. The story is about a big, tough samurai who went to see a little monk. Monk, he said, in a voice accustomed to his instant obedience, teach me about heaven and hell. The monk looked up at this mighty warrior and replied with utter disdain, "'Teach you about heaven and hell? "'I couldn't teach you about anything. "'You're dirty. "'You smell. "'Your blade is rusty. "'You're a disgrace, "'an embarrassment to the samurai class. "'Get out of my sight. "'I can't stand you.' "'The samurai was furious. "'He shook, got all red in the face, "'was speechless with rage. "'He pulled out his sword "'and raised it above him, "'preparing to slay the monk. "'That's hell,' said the monk softly. The samurai was overwhelmed. The compassion and surrender of this little man who had offered his life to give this teaching to show him hell. He slowly put down his sword, filled with gratitude and suddenly peaceful. And that's heaven, said the monk softly. And that more or less completes our discussion on the six cause and one effect method of developing bodhicitta. The other method is known as equalizing and exchanging self for others which might sound a bit strange. How do you first equalize and then exchange yourself for someone else? Is it like those late 1980s movies such as Vice Versa and Like Father, Like Son in which two people, one usually young, the other much older, swap bodies? Not quite. If I asked you, what is the center of the universe, what would you answer? Well, if you took it from your own experience, you would have to say that you are Everything you experience and everything you do to gain happiness and avoid suffering revolves around your idea of yourself and whatever or whoever is dear to you. My psychological experience of the universe tends to be like Saturn and its rings. I myself am the planet in the center. My most loved ones, favorite possessions and so on are the first ring closest to the planet me. The second ring a little further out contains friends and possessions I'm not overly attached to and the third ring might be acquaintances and sundry belongings I could do without. The fifth ring contains people that are difficult to get on with and beyond that are all the other people, strangers if you like. I think most people fashion their experience on a similar model with the most important thing, the planet me in the middle. Now from a Buddhist point of view this is all very well But it's not a model for great happiness. In fact, rather the opposite. The planet me is a place of much turmoil and trouble. The bodhicitta method equalizing and exchanging self for others basically invites us to change the model and psychologically put all others in the place of planet me. It does not mean trying to swap physical bodies. It's an exchange of the self-focused attitude with an altruistic attitude focused on the well-being even up to Buddhahood of all others. This exchange, by its very nature, brings great benefit to beings everywhere and consequently great happiness to ourselves. It is said that this method is the stronger of the two and is practiced by beings with high intelligence or faculties. However, Tipton Chodron points out that high intelligence does not mean high IQ but has more to do with what she calls receptivity to the Dharma, Your ability to understand the Dharma doesn't necessarily have to do with your IQ because lots of people have high IQs and are very dumb when it comes to Dharma, she says. Other people are illiterate but they are fully enlightened Buddhas. So don't think it has to do with academic things. The method is called equalizing and exchanging self for others. And when we start with the equalizing part, it's a bit different from what goes on at the beginning of the six cause and one effect method. In both methods, we start by practicing equanimity. But in the first one, it is an equanimity based on equalizing our feelings towards friends, enemies and strangers. Tipton-Children says that even with that method, we can still have the impression that we are more important than all of those three. In this method, we remove remove even that sense of importance to see ourselves as equal with all other beings. This is difficult because we are conditioned by our culture and society to put ourselves first before anybody else and we also have an innate tendency to do that based on a strong sense of a solid me, that is the planet me center of the universe Tipton Children describes a nine-point meditation on equalizing self and others she was taught by her root teacher, Sergong Rinpoche. The first six points are on a conventional level, the first three being from the viewpoint of others and the second three from the viewpoint of oneself. The last three points are on the ultimate level. She says, The first point is that everybody wants happiness and to be free from suffering equally. We all know this in our head. We don't know it in our heart. We must train our minds whenever we see others to think, that person wants to be happy and free of suffering as much as I do. Every time we see somebody, think that. It will help you to first get in touch with how deeply you want to be happy and free from suffering. That's our main concern, isn't it? From the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed and in our dreams, we always want to be happy and free of suffering. Get in touch with how deep that is within us and then every time we look at another being think that's exactly the same way the other being feels. This is an excellent thing to do when you're in a traffic tra- traffic jam. Think this when you look at other people in cars or if you're waiting in line or when you're standing in an airport waiting to get on your flight. Look at all the people around you and train your mind to think They want to be happy as much as I do. They want to be free of suffering as much as I do. Now this echoes what we talked about earlier in the program and what I said about Hitler, she says about Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. They did what they did because at a basic level they wanted happiness and didn't want suffering. However, people can be very ignorant about what brings happiness and what brings suffering and so they do things the wrong way round. Wanting happiness, they often do actions that destroy its causes, and not wanting suffering, they often create the causes for it. Now perhaps when you look at your own life, you can see yourself doing just that. You want happiness, but you keep doing things that you know are unwholesome and will not bring that happiness. And you don't want suffering, but you keep on with actions that ensure you will experience it. In the words of Christy DeName, a mental health research consultant, humans seek comfort in the familiar. Freud called this repetitive compulsion, which he famously described as the desire to return to an earlier state of things. She talks about developing patterns over the years that have become ingrained in us. These patterns may be positive or negative. We each create a subjective world for ourselves, and discover what works for us, she says. In times of stress, worry, anger or another emotional high, we repeat what is familiar and what feels safe. This creates ruminations of thoughts as well as negative patterns in reactions and behaviours. As an example, someone who struggles with insecurity and jealousy will find that when his significant other does not return a call or text immediately, his mind begins to wander to negative and faulty thoughts. The thoughts begin to accumulate and emotionally overwhelm the person, which leads to false accusations and unintentional harm to the relationship. In spite of not wanting to react this way, the person has created a pattern over years that then becomes familiar to him. To react differently, although more positively, would feel foreign. When someone has done something the same way for years, he or she will continue to do so, even if it causes harm for both herself and others. People also revert to earlier states if the behavior is in any way rewarding or if it confirms negative self-beliefs. For someone who inflicts self-harm in a time of emotional distress, it's a behavior that momentarily relieves the pain, even if later on the individual feels shame over it. In the example of a person who continuously enters abusive relationships, we might find that he or she is highly insecure and does not believe that he or she is worthy of being cared for. Now we may not go to such extremes, but I'm sure we can find negative behaviors in ourselves that seem very difficult to shake. If we can recognize these in ourselves and develop some self-compassion and patience as we work through them, surely we can similarly recognize others' negative behaviors and respond with understanding, patience and compassion. For just like us, they're acting out of a wish for happiness and a desire to be free of suffering. In this, we cannot find any difference between ourselves and them. Ajahn Brahm, the well-known Buddhist abbot of Baryanjana Monastery in Serpentine, Western Australia, has a wonderful example of a monk's understanding of the happiness of other, of other beings. It comes from his book, Opening the Door of Your Heart, and it goes like this. A Thai monk disciple of Ajahn Chah, now a famous teacher in his own right, was meditating in the Thai jungle with a number of monks. The sound of an approaching creature caused them all to open their eyes. They saw a king cobra coming towards them. In some parts of Thailand, the king cobra also bears the name One Step Snake because after it strikes you, all you have left is one step and then death. The king cobra came up to the senior monk raised his head level with the monk's head, opened its hood and began spitting. Sssss. Sss. Now what would you do? It would be a waste of time running. Those big snakes can go much faster than you can. What the Thai monk did was to smile, gently raise his right hand and softly pat the king cobra on the top of its head, saying in Thai, Thank you for coming to visit me. The king cobra stopped hissing closed its hood, lowered its head to the ground and went to see one of the other monks. That monk said later that no way was he going to try patting a king cobra on the head. He froze. He was terrified. He was silently wishing the king cobra would quickly go off and visit one of the other monks. That cobra-patting Thai monk once stayed several months at our monastery in Australia. We were building our main hall and had several other building projects waiting for approval at our local council offices. The mayor of the local council came for a visit to see what we were doing. The mayor was certainly the most influential man in the district. He'd grown up in the area and was a successful farmer. He was also a neighbour. He came in a nice suit befitting his position as a mayor. The jacket was unbuttoned, revealing a very large Australian-sized stomach The Thai monk, who could speak no English, saw the mayor's stomach. Before I could stop him, he went over to the mayor and started patting it. Oh no, I thought, you can't go patting the Lord Mayor on the stomach like that. Our building plans will never be approved now. We're done. Our monastery's finished. The more the Thai monk, with gentle grin, patted and rubbed the mayor's big stomach, the more the mayor began to smile and giggle. In a few seconds, The dignified mayor was gurgling like a baby. He obviously loved every minute of having his stomach patted and rubbed by this extraordinary Thai monk. All our building plans were approved and the mayor became one of our best friends and helpers. The most essential part of caring is where we're coming from. That Thai monk was coming from such a pure heart that he could pat king cobras on the head and mayors on the stomach and they both loved it. And now our time is up and we'll have to leave the second and third points in equalizing self and others until next week. Thanks for joining the program. But before we go, please let's dedicate any positive energy we've generated to the enlightenment of all living beings. I hope we'll be together again next week. Please try to be here. Thank you and goodbye.